0: Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand.
1: And I'm Michael Beirut.
0: The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air.
1: Our show is sponsored by MailChimp, which celebrates creative empathy in the world and creative chaos on the web. MailChimp. It is not hard to pronounce, people. Figure it out. <laughs>
0: So following the midterm elections last month uh, in the United States, the editors of Time magazine published a cover showing Republican Senator Mitch McConnell, who's the presumptive majority leader, over the word change. More surprising still than that, it was drawn in the style of Shepard Fairey's now iconic Hope poster, which originally came out uh, in 2008 for Barack Obama's 2008 presidential bid. Michael, what did you think of Time Magazine running this cover and, and how it summarized really what happened that
1: week? I mean, I thought it was a really effective use of a graphic trope. I think some people were actually shocked by it, partly because the Shepard Fairey Obama poster is so... Iconic in almost a quasi religious sense. You know, this is sort of sacrilegious, you know, to kind of like depose Obama from his own poster and replace him with the, um, to my eyes at least, uh, less uh, mediagenic Mitch McConnell. One thing that was interesting was that. Uh, Ferry himself was very quick to point out that... um,
0: That this is not a cover he would ever do, I think he said. It's
1: not a cover he would do, and he did not do, in fact, yeah.
0: I mean, how much does Ferry control this image?
1: I think he probably, uh, at this point, it's as close to... uh, something that is just part of the common language, th- as much as any piece of graphic design done in the last uh, 10 years. Certainly, I think you go back to maybe Milton Glazer's "I Heart New York" for something similar, where it's uh, a piece of design done for a specific client, for a specific purpose, for a specific moment, and then suddenly, just by you know, it's its graphic power, or in the case of Glazer its conciseness and its uh, mutability.
0: Yeah, but this one has snark. This this, this, to me, yeah, oh, this, this is, to me, has snark. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, you know it's, like, it's like they're saying, you said you'd change, you didn't change, you want change, yeah, yeah. here we are, we're the Republicans, make no mistake, we're the GOP, we're bringing you change. And, oh, by the way, we didn't have time to hire a new illustrator, so we just took the last illustrator, yeah. and <laughs> now we're going to bring change to the White House because we're actually worried about things that are more important than illustration. Oh,
1: no! Well, in no, a way, wait, 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 I actually think that's that's one way we're looking at it. But I think you know the, the 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 audio accompaniment to this cover would be like wah 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 like that, you know. Um, but I think the um, in a way there there may be something more depth there than just kind of we couldn't come up with a good illustrator for the cover with a, because really you know in a way the the that would make the poster kind of work in a way that what makes the cover work is that you know McConnell and the Republicans they from my point of view their position is whatever Obama wants we don't want that we want the opposite thing so in fact they sort of don't have any actual position without Obama as sort of like the uh the pole star that they kind of turn uh, 180 degrees away from. So in a way, commissioning some new designer to come up with some new fresh design to reflect the new fresh direction that Mitch McConnell is going to take the Republican Congress. I mean, what is that fresh direction? You know, the fresh direction is is a it's, it's deposing the previous uh, uh, point of view from the throne and then climbing up and kind of cladding yourself in exactly the same raiments that. Uh, <laughs> That uh, the person you're opposing, and that happens to be Shepard Ferry. But yeah. the
0: net effect <laughs> is, it's like taking a picture of the Mona Lisa and putting a mustache on it. That's
1: really it, what br- it feels was it like. Brilliant and a it brilliant was. piece of art it was when <laughs> that's uh, true. when did that. Exactly, so. exactly. Yeah.
0: Um, so if yeah. you were the creative director of Time Magazine or sitting on the editorial board, would you have done this?
1: Yeah, I would have. And there's, uh, there's actually a kind of, there's an interesting, subtle thing that I really sense was a very deliberate choice when when ferry did um um his obama he did two covers before. One with Obama as a subject of, on the cover of Time. The other one was an anonymous Occupy Wall Street process from the cover. Both rendered in his quintessential style. And they were cover designs. They went from you know edge to edge, top to bottom. What's interesting about this particular treatment is that it's not a cover design. What it is is a poster in the style of the Obama Hope or Obama Change poster that's photographed as a poster and then kind of like stuck on the cover with the edges clearly the there with actually the pin marks showing how the poster is being hung on this imaginary wall. And what that does that is mean? The, uh, what does that mean I to think you? I, as far as I can tell, that means that they're sort of acknowledging that this is actually not an original cover, but it's an appropriation of something else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think they're just underlining the you know, they're, they're highlighting the quotation marks and they're underlining the highlights, if you ask me. And I've been, for what purpose? I don't know. They, they could have just as soon done a, a full-on mis McConnell cover, then that probably would have been all the more disturbing, or something. I don't know. Right. But um, I sense there was a lot of brooding in the uh, in the art department and in the editorial uh, uh, meetings at time while they were really thinking: Can we? Should we?
0: Dare we? Dare we?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. One of the things that's kind of receding in our uh, uh, rearview mirror is that election, and I think we look at it, you know, certainly the most important part of it wasn't, uh, you know, how time decided to do their cover. It interests us, but the thing that actually dominated the election here in the States more than anything else was the um, uh, fact that. Uh, supposedly more money was spent on the campaigns and the campaign advertising in this election than it had ever been spent on any uh, midterms before and perhaps any elections before. And so um, that brings us, I think, to money and something that I uh, – notice you had seen, which is a uh, proposal to redesign the dollar bill. A guy named, a student I think, named Travis Purrington uh, went online with um, a complete makeover of American currency. Can you describe what that was? Because to me it's sort of if, if money is the issue, why not just go right to the source and redesign money?
0: Well, he did this really beautiful project, and it's gotten quite a bit of attention, uh, and I think rightly so. He's a student at the Basel School of Design in Switzerland, and in his research he pointed out, among other things, that the United States dollar hasn't really been significantly changed since 1929, ironically the Mm -hmm. year of the stock market crash. Easy number to remember. Um, He looks at uh, getting rid of things like uh, Masonic symbolism and national monuments, eagles, Uh, old white guys, patterned cornfields. And he looks instead um, at uh, things that can be representative of American culture that can be celebrated, that are perhaps more ubiquitous, that are more organic, that are more... kind of really take issue with the fact that America is more than the sum of its kind of boring old historical parts.
1: Yeah, and and it also has to do with... um... You know, celebrating the American worker in a very subtle way. It's, you sort of get it more through the captions of the of the images and the images themselves. One thing I, I thought that he did that I that I liked quite a bit was. Even though they're simple, fresh, and modern looking, there's an underlying structure that um, he derived from the Masonic uh, imagery on our currency, eagles and pyramids with eyes in them and stuff like that. And then he also has kind of like subtly embedded all these references to existing currencies. So I thought it had a lot of ingenuity to it. And And it it looks really modern.
0: It looks super modern. Oh, it looks modern. really modern, yeah. yeah.
1: And, and, I, and I don't understand why uh, my money has to look old. You know, it's like in your pocket, you will have the contemporary American is likely to have, you know, an iPod, which is, or, or an iPhone, rather, uh, which is one of the most modern devices in the world. And then right next to it, they're, they're likely to have some currency that looks like this, like, fever dream of some bearded, you know, robber baron, you know, smoking cigars and spitting into a brass spittoon in some smoke-filled gentleman's club and just kind of, you know, well, I mean, just as Well, you could just, probably like, make I, an argument that, that
0: if something looks, if something looks like it's, you know, special, it will be valued as such, right? So I think maybe that's where they were going in those robber baron days. it's it's probably worth pointing out, because I teach this course on blue, I have did a little research on um, the color green, and it turns out that the uh, French historian Michel Pastoreau, who wrote the the Bible on the history of the color blue, he wrote a book on stripes, he wrote a book on black, he's now come up with a book on green. And in in turning to the subject of green as a a go-to color for money, he points out that green as a pigment is known to be remarkably unstable as a chemical uh, substrate, which is why it's sometimes used uh, particularly Particularly to represent things that are fleeting like love or childhood and certainly money so and then you know there's other people who've written about it i think alexander theroux wrote this great book uh, called the primary colors years ago hmm. and then he came out with a book on the secondary colors and one of the chapters is on green greens now has these really lovely connotations it's green it means it's sustainable it means it's
1: good yeah, it means yeah, it's yeah.
0: wonderful but you know good to said it was the color of the middle class so there you go
1: <laughs> no it's funny and it's um um you know I think it's surprising if you uh, uh are a uh, provincial sort of American which I am to suddenly realize that money is in green all around the world. It's, it's really, that's just an American thing. And, you know, uh, um, did you see that uh, money, they just uh, the currency they just introduced in Norway? Beautiful uh, it's currency just, it, in Norway. It's so beautiful. And the it's, stuff uh, they
0: rejected was
1: beautiful. Oh, yeah. And the whole thing's amazing. And uh, uh, we'll have a link to it, um, you know, on uh, Design Observer. But it's, you know, they had a design competition to redesign the currency. The architecture firm Snowetta won, and uh, their currency has... Uh, Images of nature, basically the, the challenge, the theme was to draw the images from the sea and uh, beautifully done images that are just kind of really evocative and great and, and actually, frankly, nationalistic given Norway's geography. Right, they, they gave uh, them then, a theme.
0: It was a competition, yeah. I think. And there was the theme was water, which, of course, is big yeah. in Scandinavia. And then I think on the back, it's it's a sort of modern, more sort of pixelized version of something that looks quite contemporary.
1: And it's like talking about something that I would actually, you know, It's not supposed to be good to lust after money, but I would lust after that Norwegian money at the drop of a... Of, of a Norwegian hat, whatever you call it. Well, and you don't, you don't have to be. stop
0: there because uh, just two days ago, the uh, Norwegian government debuted its new design for uh, Passport. It was designed by uh, an Oslo studio called the Neue Design Studio. We'll put a link to this on our site also. Um, very simple, simple plain color, very simple typography on the cover. When you put the Passport under a UV lamp, you get a picture that shows up, which is a landscape. I mean, it's so subtle and it's so elegant. And, you know, it looks really official and it's got this stamp on the front. But, in fact, it's not dull and boring and nationalistic and ugly and, yeah. and, yeah. and, and go I, Norway. I will,
1: you know, hey, I will not apologize for America, but um, this redesign of um, the passports that happened here a few years ago is just like another, another disaster. It's, you know, passports you just have this nice blue front so the United States of America, you open it up and they're just places to get your passport stamped now every one of those pages has like a pre it comes pre-printed with like pictures of eagles and mountains and fields and every spread has a quote I was killing time and, and, and the last time I was going through custom and most of the quotes are from guys on top of everything else you know I mean really like there's one quote from a woman and the rest are just one man after another
0: whereas you got to hand it to the British they're changing their currency in a couple of years and I think at least on one of these bills they're planning on putting someone new and I think it's going to be Jane Austen.
1: Jane Austen. And who cared more about money than Jane Austen? (laughs) It's like the main character in every one of her novels. They're always like the the men and the women who are trying to find love. But the impediment is always like the fortune that the young man had or didn't have or was going to lose or something or other. This is a jury I want to be on,
0: deciding what the right (laughs) cultural literary reference is for the future of currency
1: and you know we're we're having an anachronistic conversation now aren't we because we are. uh you know um since the last time we talked apple pay was launched and pretty soon every single person and every transaction around the world is just going to be holding up some sort of handheld device to some sort of reader and some sort of thing is going to happen and money will change hands without any money without any hands involved barely right
0: right and so suddenly just as we had to design cd boxes after those of us (laughs) lucky enough to live at a time when 12 inch vinyl existed we've had to downsize and and then we had to deal with mobile protocols and so too will the currency discussion go the way of all credit cards it'll become a tiny little thing and uh, eventually, it'll be just a chip in your ear, or in your bank. Yeah, exactly,
1: your yep, bank's here. Yep. So, yeah, so people, um, people use their um, use their phones to pay for things. But the other thing they do that I know you really care deeply about is they use their phones to take pictures. And I know you just came from a. Giant photography exhibition in Paris uh, uh, that I'd like to hear about. It's called a uh, uh, Photo Paris. Pa- a Paris, Paris
0: photo. photo. It takes place every year uh, at the, uh, the Grand Palais, which is a beautiful domed building that is a great icon in uh, the city of Paris. It was built in 1900 for the Grand Exhibition, the same exhibition that launched the Eiffel Tower. It's got the most beautiful vaulted ceiling of glass because there was no air conditioning, and uh, it is this, the, the setting for this uh, very international exhibit that I'm glad I went to, but I don't think I'll soon go back. It was really... It was, it was Why? crowded. Why? It was full of uh, very um, beautifully dressed people. It was full of very uh, wealthy people. It was full of very opinionated people people um and and the disconnect for me wasn't the the kind of lofty reserve of the art world although certainly um it's difficult to be thrust into the middle of all these gallerists um on a beautiful saturday afternoon in paris but i think that I heard from at least one gallerist that because it is so expensive to show work at this uh, exhibition, that the things they were showing really privileged the things they knew they could sell, which already mm. is a cultural, a curatorial slant, which, which kind of I'm, I'm slightly uncomfortable with. But the other thing is, which I, th- I think is, is the bigger topic for us to discuss, Michael, is you know photography is, is a really public medium now, and uh, it's not really art. And so the idea that art's moving in one direction and the ubiquity of photographic sharing and uploading and pilfering and things going viral on another, it seemed a bit anachronistic and a bit strange that there were all of these dealers and some of them were marvelous and there was some great work to be seen. Um, there were certainly a lot of publishers there showing really great books. But I think the degree to which photography, it's, it's, it's now, its everybody's doing it. It's not a fancy thing.
1: But did, they, did that mean that, well, did they show classic photography for at the show as well? They
0: showed classic photography, they showed new photography.
1: And, and, and if you were looking like at a, at, a, at a Cortez or an Edward Western or something, that seemed to have a different kind of value than modern? It did to modern, me. It did yeah. to
0: me. I mean, I I, I still, my, my pulse races when I see, a, you know, a, a, a Man Ray photograph or or something from uh, uh, Edward Steichen, one of my heroes. But I think that the, the most interesting thing that I saw was actually a talk I heard, and we will publish this talk on Design Observer, which was a talk given by Marvin Hefferman, who's one of our Mm, occasional contributors. And he gave this really interesting perspective on what he calls the slipperiness of photography. And really, what makes photography a slippery subject is that, in fact, everybody feels that it's something different than everybody else. uh, That it really isn't art anymore. It maybe never was art. There was maybe never enough photography to be qualified as art because of the the, what makes photography exciting is the fact that it's always changing.
1: And and the fact that it's... um Democratic somehow, you know, it's very
0: democratic and, and he talked about things that are really difficult to talk about like, you know Who decides who publishes photographs? Uh, after a tragedy after a national disaster he talked mm. about surveillance photography and how much complicity we have with what's out there He talked about how things are valued and how we speak about them and what's effective in a photograph And then of course he talked about social media and how untethered the, our photographs are from the photographers who take them
1: Yeah, no exactly I've got a daughter who's a senior in college right now, and uh, I just happened to visit her in the past couple days. She goes to college in California. So I was out there, and I had dinner with her and some of her friends. And they started kind of digging out pictures that she had taken in junior high school and in her early years of high school and posted. So, like, you know, the, the deep, dark history of four or five years ago. And those things are being posted around. And so they're kind of like saying, look, here's us in middle school. And uh, she had an instance where it was a picture of a friend of hers. And then another friend said, wait, I've got that whole picture. And then it was an uncropped image showing that that friend actually was in the same picture as my daughter. And so it was like even this, you know, even in the, in the realm of the junior high school hallway, these um, uh, kids were all, you know, cropping and recropping people in and out of pictures, almost as if they were... Uh, master propagandist for the Soviet Politburo which in is exactly uh, 1930. Why,
0: which is exactly why it's so slippery. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Michael, you mentioned that there was this great Jody Rosen article that came out in the Times about a week ago about uh, what, what they call in London, doing the knowledge, which
1: is the, the yeah, unbelievable
0: yeah, yeah. thing about becoming a London taxi driver. Could you talk about that article and about what that means?
1: yeah I found it fascinating as a designer, and it's just a great also rosen's piece great piece of journalism, the New York Times It's about um what it takes to qualify to be a London cab driver, very coveted license to get and a very difficult one to get because London is actually a a maddeningly complex city it has no real center it's just a bunch of overlapping villages the streets have really no logic whatsoever to the way they're laid out unlike new york that has a grid unlike paris it has grand boulevards you know london is really just this incomprehensibly dense mashup of uh, Uh, spaghetti, you know, with it's a labyrinth, a labyrinth indeed and um, to be a cab driver there for years uh, you've had to have mastered those streets and have a mental more or less a mental map in your mind of the entirety of the city and the way that's tested is you sit in front of an examiner in a series of tests each one of which uh, you have a chance to get points and you have to get a number of points in a certain period of time in order to finally qualify you sit in front of an examiner you and that other person, and that person will simply name two destinations, two points in London, and you know, Notting Hill Gate and um, uh, Bethnal you know, Green. Bethnal Green, let's say. Although my guess is that they wouldn't even bother doing two easy ones like that. The points themselves sometimes are like crazily obscure, and then the um, the person who's uh, applying has to sit and recite basically the fastest, most accurate journey you would take to uh, get from point A to point B, naming every street, every lane, every intersection, every roundabout, every landmark, with absolute accuracy. You bear on, then you turn left on this street, then you make a, a, a slight right when you come to this street, you bend onto this. And in London, there's like no straight line from one place to another. It is always complex in that way. And, and that's called the knowledge. And acquiring kind of the knowledge with a capital K, knowledge, is this long process that involves riding around on... Um, a
0: bike, right? On
1: bicycles. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it used to be bicycles, now it's motorbikes more likely, with a map and with your notes in front of you, and you just have to do it and there's this beautiful passage in the article where he says you know once you first it seems like impossible but once you've been doing it every one of these drivers says there's a moment where suddenly everything joins up in your mind and you've got that picture and it's just a beautiful thing and i think so why even bother
0: the, to do it on this way yeah. why if if now that there's gps why would anybody do GPS. this
1: GPS. well i was talking to a londoner i was enthusing about this whole thing to a londoner um last week. And um, the Londoner I was talking to was kind of rolling his eyes about Uber and about GPS and saying, I can't tell you how many, how long I've stood on corners waiting for some guy trying to navigate his way over to me with GPS. The GPS fails in the city. Really? It's not entirely accurate. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing.
0: But the thing about this London taxi uh, doing the knowledge thing is also there's something kind of romantic about it and nostalgic about it and certainly very kind of classic London about it, and if you'll permit me this anecdote, I have to tell you that last time I was in London, I left uh, dinner, actually you and I were to dinner together, Michael, at the wonderful National History Museum, and uh, when we left that dinner, there were no more, uh, there was no more underground, because it was quite late, and I was obliged to take a taxi to my hotel, which was quite a ways, and so I got to have a nice long chat with the driver, and I said to him how has your life changed since the GPS? And he concurred with what you just told me, which is that, in fact, it's very flawed, and he really believed in uh, doing things the old-fashioned way. But he said to me, and if you'll permit me, he said it to me in this accent that is just, I will try to do a pale imitation of it, but he turned to me as we pulled up in front of the door of my hotel, and he said to me proudly, sitting very tall in his driver's side seat on the other side of the car, the the one I'm used to, he said, Madam, if I may be so bold, doing the knowledge is the last bastion of the British Empire. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, I got out of the car and into my
1: hotel. Oh, God. Um, well, that sounded really, really convincing to me <laughs> as an accent. Every time I try to do my uh, g- kind of Cockney accent, my uh, British friends say I sound like Dick, as bad as Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. So, uh, Well, I thought you were going um, to say to
0: me, don't quit your day job. So there you are.
1: <laughs> no, I, 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 I was very impressed by that. <laughs> but it is true. Now, it is um, sort of mastering that sort of Baroque complexity. And, and I don't know, maybe there's just something to be said for Baroque complexity. You think about paper money, you think about so many of these other things. Um Baroque complexity has its own kind of authority and sometimes its own kind of charm. And so uh, uh, as designers, our tendency is always to drive towards clarity and simplification and ease of use.
0: But just as we ended last time with talking about theater, there's something theatrical about this. In other words, mm. if you've ever been in a play and you learn blocking, you learn your lines by where you're standing when you give your lines this I know. And in a sense, this is the the old concept of the memory palace, right? When the great Mm -hmm. orators would actually look around and they would actually identify visual cues to remember where they were in their soliloquy. This is the same thing, only they're doing it with the entire city of London.
1: You know, it definitely is a question about almost about like kind of the cultural significance of what makes London, London. The fact that People kind of value this idea that it can't be reduced to a global positioning system, but somehow this ability of people to kind of capture it all in their mind is what every kind of Londoner, I think, is like, you know, has the ambition to do. Only few of them will qualify to get these licenses, but everyone sort of wants that mental image, I think.
0: But what do you think design could actually do? Is there something that, that designers could do to make that labyrinth, you know, easier to navigate?
1: London has the model pedestrian wayfinding system, this thing called Legible London, that a firm called Applied created as part of a consortium a few years ago, and now it's uh, you know become very influential, and I worked on a New York version of it here in New York. And it's uh, it really is um, a mapping system that, because of GPS and because of digital mapping systems, lets you do things you were never able to do before. And one of the most interesting things you can do, and this is how I think the world of GPS, GPS connects up with this uh, with a printed map and with the map we all have in our minds is um in London they invented this thing called heads up or they propagated this thing called heads-up mapping, meaning that uh, unlike any map you've ever seen in a schoolroom or any map you've held in your hand uh, as an atlas or anything else, north is not necessarily up. Instead, when you're facing one of these maps on a London street, what's up is the direction you're facing. So Mm -hmm. if you're facing south, south is at the top of the map. If you're facing east-northeast, East northeast is the top of the map. The maps are rotated, you know, to whatever point it is that makes the direction you're facing be the very top. And you can see the logic in that. And how many times have you looked at a map uh, and thought, "Okay." you know, you have to rotate it to sort of think, okay, if I go straight, the second corner, I turn left, but on the map, it's right. Right. Well, there's things I'm that say you backwards. are here.
0: You're never there yeah, where yeah, they exactly, say you are. Yeah, you're never, you're never yeah. there for long.
1: And so what's interesting is that um, that's become sort of the new default standard. So when we introduced, uh, when, the, when the version of, uh, of this pedestrian wayfinding system was introduced here in uh, Manhattan in New York, I remember sort of like seeing uh, a prototype map that had, you know, downtown New York at the top and had uptown New York York at the bottom. And I just thought, well, this is just You know, cra this is madness. You know, people aren't going to stand for this. Instead, when they polled people on the street, eighty percent of the people they asked preferred the heads up mapping.
0: But do you think that's just just New York? Because New York is so long and skinny and gridded.
1: No, 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 no. This was anywhere. I think it's because people are people are so people have gotten so acclimated to GPS as a way of navigation that they just expect the map to be the direction they're going and not have any reference to those cardinal points. That really seems to be what's happening. And it used to not be, you used to not be able to enable it if you're just uh, pasting up the same printed map and moving the you are here dot from the one place to another now um, because these maps all exist as one giant database that you can manipulate infinitely when you rotate it all the icons and all the landmarks and everything else rotate at the same time it's really miraculous and it makes all these new mapping technologies possible. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com, and you can find links to Travis Purrington's Dollar Bill designs, the McConnell cover of Time magazine, and all the other things we talked about today if you visit there. Between episodes, keep up with designers around Facebook and on Twitter, and let us know what you thought of this show, and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time.
0: If you're hearing this for the first time, you can follow us on SoundCloud. We'll let you know when you can subscribe on iTunes. And if you're not listening already, please tune in to our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman.
1: And a big thank you to MailChimp. That's pronounced MailChimp for sponsoring the observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Thank you, Jessica. Until next time.
0: Thanks, Michael. See you next time.